Hello, this is Brian Metlaga. I'm the Associate Director of Education for the Endourology Society, and I'd like to welcome you to this edition of Endourology Soundbites podcast series, which is sponsored by Richard Wolf. In this episode, we have the good fortune of being able to speak with Dr. Bodo Knudsen, who's director of the Kidney Stone Program at The Ohio State University. And what we'll be talking about today is an overview of the mini-PERC procedure, and I think just getting an understanding from Dr. Knudsen, who's probably among the busiest uh, percutaneous surgeons in the United States, of what his sense of the procedure is, and I think just learn a little insight from him into how it fits into his practice. So with that, Dr. Knudsen, I'd like to thank you for joining us in this podcast. Yeah, thank you. It's uh, great to be here and certainly a topic I'm pretty excited about. And so I guess just to ground our discussion before we move forward, how would you define mini perk? So typically it's thought of as procedures with track size less than 20 French. There may be a little bit of a gray zone there depending on the equipment that you're using and typically larger than, you know, about 13 or 14 French. So Again, would depend a little bit on what kit and things, but I think that's a good way to frame it is thinking less than 20 French. And so then moving from that, you know, kind of what is MiniPerk to you and your practice, which again, you have an incredibly robust experience with conventional percutaneous nephrolithotomy. What made you interested in incorporating MiniPerk into your practice? Yeah, you know, I think there were a number of factors. I think, you know, a general sort of overarching principle in terms of what I do is to always look at ways to try and improve and do things better and try not to be complacent. And we had done many years where we had done large tracks and for the most part, things have worked out well and patients did well. But I started to speak with some of my colleagues internationally, certainly in Europe, Germany, mini PCNL was gaining a lot of traction. And, you know, the things I was hearing was less bleeding, quicker recovery times. And then the argument of the actual tract really being about a quarter of the surface area compared to a full-size tract, to me, was a really compelling argument. We are making a hole in a major organ, and if we can make that hole smaller, there must be some benefit. You know, in urology, we've seen that with robotics and laparoscopy moving towards smaller and smaller incisions quicker recoveries related to that. And I thought that this was a real opportunity in stone disease to try and help push things forward. And so what was that transition like when you kind of moved into those initial cases of mini perk? Were there challenges that came up that you had to overcome? You know, if you could kind of walk us through that process. Yeah, without a doubt, there is a learning curve and it is really a somewhat different operation. So I remember the first couple cases we did, we made the tract and uh, we went in and, you know, our vision didn't seem to be great. And, you know, we didn't have the same tools to break up the stones that we were used to. So there clearly is an adjustment process. So I think the first thing was optimizing the flow. So when you have your flow through your mini scope, you want to be very consistent. And we went with a sort of automated pressure irrigation system. So Hermetics makes one. There's a few different ones on the market. And we found that actually to be very helpful. We could set the pressure and we had very consistent flow so that we didn't have problems with vision. So that was an early challenge and that provided us a really good solution. The second thing you have to think about is how your flow is getting into the patient. Is it going through the scope and is it competing with the instruments in the scope channel or are you putting it in through a separate sheath? So for my mini PCNLs, I'm using the 
sorts MIP system. And with that system, your flow is all through the scope. So anything you put in the scope channel is going to start to limit that. So we had to really be careful about what instruments we used, so what laser fiber to use, what was the best balance between something being robust and sturdy during the case, but still allowing enough flow. So we ended up settling on using a 365 micron core laser fiber, and that kind of was the sweet spot where we had enough flow, but that fiber was still stable enough that we could treat effectively. You know, and then we're starting to think about things like settings. You know, what settings do we use? Do we dust stones? Do we fragment them? So that was another thing that we had to figure out along the way. And I know that in the field of percutaneous surgery, there's a good amount of discussion about optimal positioning, whether it's prone for PCNL or supine for PCNL. I guess first question is how you typically approach PCNL. Do you typically use prone or supine? And then how does mini perk affect that equation? So, you know, for many years, I uh, was an advocate of doing prone with split legs. And actually, at one point, it actually worked with one of the uh, table companies to build a custom carbon fiber table that allowed us to position people ideally for that in that prone split leg position. So they had access from above and below. And that's how we started doing the mini PCNLs was in the prone position, very similar to how we did the rest of our perks. And it worked okay, but it was a little bit more difficult to get the pieces out. And, you know, again, when we get back to sort of the technique with mini perk, our technique is to break the stone up into chunks and then flush them out through the sheath, sort of using that Bernoulli effect or Venturi effect that's created as you kind of pull that scope back. And people will argue that it does work in the prone position and it does to a certain degree, but you're still fighting gravity. You know, it's physics and gravity is working against you. It's really when we started doing cases supine that I felt that mini was a lot more feasible, at least in our hands, because all of a sudden it was so much faster to get those pieces out. And I think if you talk to people who've done them both prone and supine, universally, you're going to get the response that it does work better supine. And it's because the tract is more dependent and the pieces start to flush out. So to me, that was kind of a key transition point where we started increasing the size of the stones that we did with mini and really that it became our preferred technique. And if we could just speak a little bit to the tract itself, again, just for background, how when you were doing conventional PCNL, did you establish the tract? Were you more balloon, amplats, alkyl dilator? And then with mini perk, obviously the instrument sets have a little bit of different ways to establish or dilate your nephrostomy tract. And if you could speak a little to your experience with those. Yeah, then that's really a key difference between the procedures. So we had been using balloons for many years. I think with large tracks, balloons are still, I think, the way to go. You place the balloon, it's a single step inflation and you place your sheath. So it's quick and it's efficient and it works really well. And there's a lot of really great balloons available, both in 24 and, and 30 French. So that's how we had traditionally always done it. With mini, the first thing is there aren't really a lot of balloons available. Cook does make an 18 French balloon, so they do have one, but a lot of the major manufacturers don't have a balloon. So the Stortz MIP system, for those that aren't familiar with it, is really a complete set of instruments. So it's one-step dilators in various sizes 
reusable sheaths, the scope, and then there's a few other miscellaneous instruments that come with it. So we typically use the middle size, which is a 16 and a half French dilator. And it's a one-step dilator that you pass over a wire. And coming from balloons, it's definitely a different feel because as you advance that dilator, you're dilating that track. But honestly, very simple to learn. You know, I was a little bit concerned about it when I first started. I think that's one of the easier things to learn. It's very easy to see the dilator under fluoro. And then they actually have a channel in them. So once they're in the collecting system, you actually should get fluid back through it, which is interesting and maybe helpful for those who are using a lot of ultrasound as well to get that confirmation. And then the sheath just screws in over it, just like any other sheath would during any other piece, you know. So it's a different technique. It takes a little bit of getting used to, but I would say the learning curve for that is short and it shouldn't hold people back. And you spoke a little bit about lithotrite, specifically the laser for mini perk. The first question, do you think there is an optimal lithotrite for mini perk? And then if so, if it's laser or lithoclast or, you know, kind of rigid, flexible to that end, what's your thought process behind how you're going to break up the stone? You know, I think this is where the biggest difference between a standard perk and a mini perk exists. We simply don't have the large caliber, powerful ultrasonic or ultrasonic combined with ballistic devices that work so well during standard perk where you can just sit there and vacuum out the entire stone. It doesn't exist because of the size limitation. So we've really run the gamut and tried a number of different things. A few years back, we tried the shock pulse, which was at that time kind of the state of the art lithotriptor. And it was challenging. It, it would break up the stones, but it wouldn't suck them out very well. So you still had to flush them out. The Trilogy device, I would say, is perhaps a little bit more efficient. So we have done a number of mini perks with that. That is also a sort of dual modality lithotriptor, and we've had some success with it. And it actually will vacuum out some material, but it's still somewhat limited by the lumen size. So at the end of the day, we really found that laser was the simplest. And it's the combination of going in and breaking the stones up into pieces that are just small enough to fit through your sheath and then relying on the venturi effect of the sheath to wash those pieces out. And that combination seems to work the best. As I mentioned before, a 365 micron fiber seems to be the sort of sweet spot in terms of still getting enough flow, but being stable enough that it's not bouncing all over the place as you break up the stone. We have done a few cases with the new thulium fiber laser. That also looks to be very promising. The one difference that we noticed with the thulium was that the fragments that were created seemed to be very consistent in size. So rather than getting a lot of big pieces and small pieces and medium pieces all mixed together, for whatever reason with the thulium, we seem to get very consistent fragment size and we're able to take on some very large stones and clear them quite quickly using mini. So I think in the future, that may be an area that grows. And what are your thoughts on endoscopic combined intrarenal surgery or ESERS or ECIRS? Have you undertaken any cases sort of bridging mini perk with the ESERS approach? Yeah. So this was one of the areas going into this that I didn't realize initially how valuable it would be. One of the challenges is, so if you use the 16 and a half dilator, 17 and a half French sheath, 
with the stored system, it's very difficult to get a flexible cystoscope through the sheath. Some of them will fit, some won't. We've actually had some where they kind of almost got wedged into the sheath. The mini does limit your ability to do flexible nephroscopy, especially in the traditional way that you would during a standard. You can go through with a flexible ureteroscope through the sheath, but most of the scopes are very long and it's somewhat unwieldy to control it through the sheath. You know, anybody who's done a lot of PCNLs and tried that, I think, can understand the challenges there. Stortz does make a pediatric length flexible ureteroscope, so that maybe works a little bit better, but it's still very limited. So the idea with ESERS is that you're putting the scope up from below and you advance it up the ureter just like you would during a ureteroscopy up into the kidney. And what it does is it allows you to get into positions within the kidney that you can't get to through your your sheets, through your access. And it's amazing how great that combination works because now you can start to go in basket stones out of, you know, a parallel calyx that you can't get into pull it into the pelvis and then hand the stone off to the person controlling the mini scope and take it out that way or fragment it and take it out that way. So we've really realized that this is an amazing combination and use it quite routinely now during our procedures. The one challenge is if it's a surgeon who operates alone and doesn't have an assistant or a resident, it doesn't work as well because it really relies on having two people. So certainly in a teaching center where we have residents, it's a great way to operate. And then what is your exit strategy or drainage plan as you complete a mini perk case? Do you do uh, leave a nephrostomy, tubeless, but with ureteral stent, totally tubeless? How does your thought process work with that? So one of the benefits, I think, of mini PCNL is, you know, to try and get the patients out of hospital quickly. And our exit strategy really is trying to be in sync with that. And we know that using stents, hospital stays are shorter than using nephrostomy tubes because you avoid the issue with clamp trials and waiting to get the tubes out and having somebody remove it. So we certainly favor a stenting strategy. That being said, if we can avoid a stent altogether, that's a win as well. And we certainly do our fair share of mini PCNLs completely tubeless. So no nephrostomy and no stent. But that would have to be a situation where there's very little bleeding, there's no edema around the UPJ, the case went extremely smooth. And where we're seeing that is for some of these lower pole stones. So like these 10 to 15 millimeter lower pole stones where we're going in, creating our track, getting the stone out, and knowing there's nothing else in that kidney, those are ideal for a totally tubeless approach. The next sort of level up from that is we're leaving a lot of stents now on strings or tethers, and we're simply leaving them overnight. So we're leaving a stent kind of as a safety valve. We're leaving a string coming out through the urethra, and we're leaving a Foley catheter in. The patient stays for a 23-hour observation stay, and in the morning, they're afebrile. It's minimal bleeding. They're looking okay. Then everything comes out, and the patient still gets to go home without a stent. And I would say that's now our largest group. That's the majority of the ones we do. 
So we still have that safety valve overnight, but we're able to take that stent out the next morning and send them out. And if there is something untoward that happens, then we can leave the stent. So that's a nice option. And then if there is somebody where I really think they need to be stented for an extended period of time, you know, perhaps a severely impacted UPJ stone or history of infection or something else I'm concerned about, then we'll simply leave a stent and take the string off and then deal with it at a later date. The only time I usually leave a nephrostomy tube is if a patient specifically requests it, which is rare, or if I think I have to go back. If I need to go back into that kidney, then I'll leave a nephrostomy tube so I have it. And so as you look in your practice at patient selection criteria for standard PERC, for mini PERC, have you a process that you've somewhat codified at this point of who gets what type of intervention? Yeah, and it's evolving. It continues to evolve. I would say our approach now is the mini PCL is essentially the default. And the decision in the office really is, does this need to be a standard or not? So if it's a full branching staghorn stone, if it's a history of you know large struvite stones, those ones I still prefer a standard approach. And it's mainly because of the lithotripsy devices, being able to use a shock pulse or use a trilogy device and really vacuum out those big soft stones. But beyond that, the vast majority now we are going with mini, even you know, three, three and a half centimeter stones. If we don't think that they're infectious stones, we will treat them with a mini now. And then really where we have a lot of discussions are these challenging lower pole cases that are difficult ureteroscopically. We know from the data that's out there from people like Peggy Pearl that our clearance rates ureteroscopically are not that great. So when we see these 10 to 15 millimeter lower pole stones, we do have discussions with the patient about mini perk versus ureteroscopy. And, you know, the discussion often revolves around stenting, because if we're going to put an access sheath up and basket out these fragments, we're going to leave a stent ureteroscopically versus the mini perk, which, while perhaps a slightly more invasive procedure, may give them the benefit of not having to put up with that stent for nearly as long after. So that's really the conversation that we're having a lot now in the office. I'd like to thank you for being a part of this. I think in these past 20 minutes or so, although we may not have covered everything about mini-PCNL, I think we've covered pretty much everything you would want to know about mini-PCNL. And on behalf of the Endurological Society, Dr. Kanajit, I'd like to thank you for joining us in this podcast and lending your considerable expertise on this discussion. Thank you. It's really uh, my pleasure to be here and I appreciate it. And I obviously encourage our listeners, this is a regular series that Richard Wolf has graciously supported on behalf of the Endurological Society, and I look forward to you joining us again in the future. Thank you. Thank you.